0: Well, we are so glad that you are here and uh, that we get to worship Jesus Christ with you. Uh, If you've not been here with us before, we're in the second week of a five-week series called PLANT. Now, PLANT is connected to an individual study guide that uh, we've been in. It's a 60-day study guide. To, to help us kind of grow our faith. And you can, you can either have an individual guide or a group guide. It's actually designed as well for families to do it. And so I know many of you, dozens of you, many more than we anticipated, to be honest, are, have purchased books either online uh, or here on campus. And so we're excited about what you're doing and the way that you are participating. And so what we wanted to do in the last half of this 60-day study was to actually go through uh, the five steps that the plant material uses every day. Um, and, And that's because plant, I mean, it's an acronym, right? So the P is for prepare your heart. And the L is for lean into scripture. And then the A is to analyze that scripture. The N is the ability to then discover what are your next steps. For you as an individual, what does that scripture mean? After you've leaned into it, read it, kind of looked at the context, and you've analyzed it, then what does it mean for me? What's my next step? And then the T is for the part that so many of us leave off. We think scripture, as I said last week, is just something to memorize and, and have intellectual assent to, but the T is for actually take that next step. It's one thing to say, oh, I ought to love my neighbor. Well, what does that look like, all right? And so we're taking those steps, and, and by the way, the plant materials design designed uh, as a workbook to help you learn to do that, and the reason for that is because we believe that, that those five steps, can be learned and become a model for you every day for the rest of your life. I've actually been using a similar model uh, since my early days uh, in, uh, in my doctoral program at Emory University in Atlanta, and, and uh, that, that pattern has become so much a part of my life that it, you, you can have this in a, like where it takes 15 minutes, or you can spend two or three hours or a whole day in a, in a spiritual retreat. Uh, using those same five steps to prepare your heart, to lean into Scripture, to analyze the Scripture, then discover what the next step is for you, and then take that next step in your life. And so this morning, we're gonna talk about what it means to lean into Scripture. Now, in order to lean into Scripture, you have to understand something very, very important. You have to understand that Scripture is authority over our life. If you view scripture from the standpoint of, well, let me see what I think the scripture says, and you pick and choose. In my first church, this is not an exaggeration. I was a 21-year-old young pastor between my junior and senior year of college, and I accepted a role as an interim pastor at a small country church in Donathan, Missouri. Uh, In fact, it wasn't, Donathan was a town at that time of 1,000 people, and there was a church in town. And then there was a church outside of town, and, and, and they asked me to be with the one outside of town. <laughs> and I loved those people. They were great. They put up with some sermons that you really would never want to hear again in your life, all right? But there was this one gentleman who kept coming, and um, I, he, he kind of stood out because it was a country church, and, and um, there are all kinds of different people in it, but, but this guy would come every Sunday in the same black suit, uh with no tie but the but the top button buttoned and he would sit in the front row where i could see him and he had this unbelievable i mean his bible was like this thick and all these pages coming out of it and so i'm like wow um what you know this guy must know the bible this guy he's and so I, he had a cousin in the church and i i said to him i said hey can you uh, i mean who's this guy i mean I, they tell me he's your cousin I said, he goes, yeah, and he really likes your, ser- your preaching, your sermon. I said, really? That's wonderful. That's good. Can you tell me um, what, um, what does he, he like about it? And I said, because he's got, man, all these notes. He looks like he's researching. He goes, oh, those aren't notes. See, that's my crazy uncle. And if he reads the Bible and he sees something he doesn't like in it, he rewrites it on, on a piece of paper, tears the page out, and replaces it. I'm like, I'm not sure I like the fact that he likes my sermons, all right? I'm not sure this is a good thing. And, and so um, when you deal with Scripture, when we talk about leaning into Scripture, it's not about, about on one end memorizing every verse and having the intellectual content. And it's not about picking and choosing what you want and only believing that. No, it's about, as we talked last week, preparing your heart to experience God. Because you see, that's what the purpose of the Bible is. The purpose of the Bible is to introduce you to a God who is different than any God you can create. He's more powerful, he has more insight, and when when he inspired this book to be written, and it was written over centuries, it is an amazing thing how the continuity of the message from Genesis to Revelation, is all about this grand narrative of a God who redeems us. See, the Bible is a redemptive book. It's not a judgmental book. It's not supposed to be a book of laws and regulations. No, it's a book about how God redeems people who have either chosen to wander away or people who have never even met God. And so, when we start talking about leaning into Scripture, it, it, it's important for us to, to understand how those things connect, how, how the stories of Scripture connect. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at a, a Scripture that if you don't know the context of the Scripture, I mean, the, the people involved in the passage I'm going to read to you, all of them have a, a, a secondary narrative that leads to this grand narrative that we're going to read. So before we read that scripture from John chapter 12, verse 1, I need to introduce you to the rest of the story. Because you see, this is a family. We don't know much about the parents. In fact, we don't know anything about the parents. What well, we know about are two sisters and a brother. We first meet them, the sisters anyway, in Luke's gospel, in the 10th chapter. And when we, when we meet them, it's not the most, uh, how should we say, um, it's not the nicest story. Because it's a story that if you've been around church, you've heard people preach about. Or if you've been in Sunday school or small group, you've, you've heard people talk about this story. And, and, and the, the essence of the story is that Jesus stopped by this town, a little town called Bethany, just out from Jerusalem. And, and when he was there, he was the guest in a home. It was these two sisters and their brother's home. Uh, the sisters were a girl named Mary and a sister named Martha. We don't know which one was older, but by their actions, my assumption is Martha was the oldest. (laughs) Because if you know the story, you know that while Jesus is in this this village and he's being the guest in a home, and he's teaching, Mary does the unthinkable for a Jewish woman in the first century. She actually goes in where the men are. (laughs) and she sits with the men who are listening to the rabbi, Jesus, to the teacher. Her sister Martha is in the kitchen, and she's preparing a meal for all of these people, and she's doing what every first-century Jewish woman is supposed to do, stay away from the men, don't ask questions, and make sure they can eat. If that's your house, you are 2,000 years late, all right? Because it's never, I thought maybe someday I'd see a house like that in the 21st century. I haven't seen one lately, all right? Because what I know is, my wife, remember, I have, those of you who know me, I have no sisters. But my wife, my sisters-in-law, and my daughter-in-law, they are never going to fit in that category. They're going to be servants. They're going to learn. But they're not going to just sit silently by. And Mary, on the other hand, Mary is in listening to Jesus, learning from him. And it just irritates Martha. Because Martha's supposed to have Mary to help her. And so the more she thinks about it, the more she sees what Mary's doing, the more irritated she gets. And in Luke chapter 10, as Luke tells us the story, Martha comes out to Jesus. And now you have to know, she really doesn't know who Jesus is. I mean, she thinks she knows. He's a a teacher, he's a rabbi, but she really doesn't understand that this is the son of God. Because if she did, she would not have walked out to her guest, the rabbi, Jesus, and said, hey, would you tell my sister to do the right thing? Because in essence, she's bossing God around. Now, some of you will do that all the time. I've done it at times. Hey, God, I need this. Will you do it this way? I want you to do it. No, listen, when you know who he is, you have to trust his process. And so he, he hears Martha, and he looks at Martha, and he says this thing. It's why we've always made Martha out to be the bad person, and she's not. She was just doing what she had been raised to do. Because Jesus looks at her and he says, hey, Martha, listen, I'm only gonna be here a little while, but your, your sister Mary has chosen the better thing than what you're doing. If any of you older siblings ever have somebody tell you your baby brother, your baby sister was smarter than you, more talented than you, chose the better thing than you, then you know what she was feeling. It, it, it was like, oh, and Luke kind of leaves that story hanging there. And so for years, Christian people for centuries have said, don't be a Martha. Don't be a Martha. Hey, we've really given Martha a bad rep. Because yeah, Mary had chosen to do something that was totally, totally against the cultural norms. But Martha was doing what she thought was the right thing. So we meet this family again in the Gospel of John. This time, uh, we're introduced to them through their brother, whose name was Lazarus. Some of you remember the story. Uh, Lazarus becomes ill. Mary and Martha send word. I mean, after all, Jesus had stayed in their home. Jesus was their friend. They send word to Jesus. Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan River because the authorities have been chasing him and, and so they're they gonna arrest him and so he's kind of in a safe place until his time comes to return to Jerusalem and, and when he's across the river in the safe place and word comes to him that Lazarus is ill, would he please come? He says, nope, I'm not going. And the disciples are like, what? And he goes, well, he'll, he'll recover. And they're all like, okay. <laughs> And so, for four days, they wait. And then, while they're sitting there, thinking the issue is done, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, hey, um, we're going to go across the river over to Bethany, and we're going to go see Lazarus, because he's asleep. And and the disciples look at him and say, well, if he's asleep, he'll get better. And Jesus says, okay, let me make this perfectly clear for you. He's dead. He's dead. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. He's dead? Yeah, and, and for your sake, I'm kind of glad we waited and he's dead. Now, this time, the disciples are thinking, what, is, you know, who, what in the world is Jesus doing? But it's in, because you know, they're like, they're looking for you over there. They're going to arrest you over there. You go back across that river into Bethany, authorities are going to find out it's not that far from Jerusalem. Jesus, this is not a safe move. It's an interesting place. Some of you know the term doubting Thomas. It's Thomas in that moment when Jesus says, look, we're going over to see Lazarus, who is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him before he died, because you're about to see something amazing. And they're all arguing with Jesus, you can't go. And it's Thomas who stands up, looks at the other 11 disciples and says, okay, let's go die with him. (laughs) People think Thomas had no faith. No, Thomas, Thomas had faith. He just also had questions. And for those of you who have questions, you need to know God can handle all of your questions. He handled Thomas's and the disciples. And when they show up, you remember what happens? When they get near the village of Bethany, the professional mourners are mourning. And someone sends word into town that Jesus is outside the town and, and, and could, uh, could somebody. And, and so the sisters, remember? One at a time, the sisters come out to greet him. And one of them actually looks at Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, if you'd been here, my, my brother wouldn't be dead. Have you ever said that to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, if you had done this, I wouldn't be suffering like this. I wouldn't have this pain. I wouldn't have this heartache. If you'd have just, Jesus, if you'd have just done what I asked you to do, I wouldn't be hurting like this. Jesus, it's in that context. That that shortest verse in the Bible, the two-word verse, the one you memorized as a kid when they told you you had to memorize the verse, and you memorized the shortest one you could. Jesus wept. It's in this conversation between these sisters and the mourners who are there because Lazarus had been dead by four days by now, and now, and now Jesus looks at them and says, "Didn't I tell you that he who believes in me will live forever?" And Mary and Martha are like, yeah, we know that he'll live in the resurrection at the end of time. No, Jesus is like, I am the resurrection. I am the life. It's this amazing tension between belief and pain. And so Jesus tells them when he comes to the gravesite, roll the stone away. It was one of the sisters who looks at him and says, Jesus, look, he's been dead so long, now the body's going to stink. It's starting to decompose. You really, Jesus, you really don't want to. I'm thinking it's Martha because she's the one who served in the kitchen all the time. I'm thinking she's like, no, we don't, we don't want that smell. And Jesus says, no, roll the stone away. And some of you know the story. Jesus, Jesus calls out to Lazarus, the dead man. And says, Lazarus, come forth. And miracle of miracles, this man who's been dead for days, long enough in the Jewish tradition to be declared legally dead. So nobody thinks, nobody can make the misunderstanding that he was just playing possum in there, (laughs) that he was just asleep. No, no. He was dead. He's wrapped in burial cloths. The body has begun to decay. Jesus speaks to him. And this, this man wrapped in. Burial clothes comes walking out of a tomb. And everybody's amazed. Now it's at that point that we kinda lose track of the story except for this. Nobody had ever seen anybody raised from the dead before. And so Lazarus becomes this kind of local celebrity. (laughs) Lots of people begin to put their faith in Jesus because they've heard what he's done for Lazarus. They've checked it out and they saw it. Maybe some of them were there. They begin to tell the story. And more and more people are coming to believe in Jesus. And the authorities, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, they are upset because more and more people are coming. So they actually make a plan not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus. So it's in that setting in that setting of two sisters that we first meet when they're bickering over what it means to follow Jesus. In in that setting where their brother is a man who is dead and he's called back to life. It's in that setting that in John chapter 12, verse 1, we begin to hear this part of the large, grand narrative of God. And if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to John 12, 1 and read along with me. If not, The words will be on the screen, and you can read them there. But in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we get this information about this family. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So it's six days before the beginning of Passover. Jesus is at the city of Bethany. The other gospels tell us that there was a man named Simon who had also interacted with Jesus, who knew Lazarus, who staged this party. And, and Martha, now now Martha, Martha is right where Martha was created and gifted to be. Her brother's a guest of honor. Her, her teacher, her rabbi, is there as well as the guest of honor. They're sitting in the places of recognition. And you know where Martha is? Martha is in the kitchen, and she's serving This is how I know by the connection of the grand narrative that it's not bad to be a servant. It is bad to resent those who have a different calling. It is bad to expect everybody else to be just like you and to see things just like you. For those of you who've been in Eastside for years, you've heard me be almost redundant in saying this over and over and over again, because I think the world, particularly in the 21st century, particularly in 2023, needs to understand this truth from Scripture. And that is this, unity is not uniformity. Unity is a unity of heart. It's a recognition that you're a human being. I had someone even yesterday in a conversation say to me, Pastor, I, I can't understand all the all the killing, all the, all the abuse, all the pain. How in the world can people do to people what we see on the, on the news or on the internet or read about what people are doing to people? I mean, how, how can someone behead another human being? How can someone behead a child? How can someone inflict the kind of things? And, and, I, and I look at them and say, it's really, really not that difficult to understand. You see, it, it, it requires just one thing. You have to treat the other person as not a human being. When you dehumanize another human, when you say they're not as good a human as me, when they're not as valuable to God as I am, then suddenly it's just a few more steps from there to where you degrade them to the point that they no longer have value. And some of you have been on that. Some of you have been degraded that way. You've been treated as if you don't have value. Or for some of us, like Martha, we look at people who have a different gifting than us. People who have a different calling than we have. And we, and, and, and we look at them, and, and like Martha with her sister Mary, Martha's like, no, we're going to follow the rules of the culture. And Mary's like, no, listen, this, is, this is guy's different. i, I got to hear what he's saying. It doesn't matter that all the men are going to look at me weird. It doesn't matter that all the women are going to talk about me. What matters is i got to hear what this guy's got to say. But now, fast forward, past lazarus resurrection to this night six days before the passover starts at this banquet at simon's house and now did you hear it when i read it earlier martha is serving It just sounds like a little thing right martha's serving that's what she was doing in the last one. Oh no here's the other. this time she's serving without complaining this time she's serving without judging those who don't serve in the same way she serves so if we're going to lean into scripture then we've got to know the context and the personalities involved by seeing throughout the narrative of Scripture. Don't isolate one. I mean, because many of you have heard the story of Mary and Martha. You've heard the story of Lazarus' resurrection. You've heard the story that I just read of, of Mary pouring out the perfume on Jesus' feet, and, and you don't see the connection. No, these are just isolated events. Oh, that person, that No, no. It's just one family. This is God at work in a family teaching Martha that that serving is okay. It's her gift, it's her calling. But being jealous of her sister or angry with her sister, that's not okay. Telling the son of God what he had to do to make her life better, that's not okay. But when you get to this part, you discover that over the process of being devoted to Jesus, Martha has discovered new priorities. The priorities of what it means To live in the way you were called and gifted to live. Because not all of us have the same giftings. I'm about to owe somebody lunch and embarrass them tremendously. I'm just giving her a prep. But some of you know Leanna who dances when we worship. Leanna is a good friend that I baptized during her freshman year at Anderson University in this place. And I sat Friday night, Leanna, with tremendous pride. It was holy pride in you and your colleagues in the University School for Dance as you actually choreographed as well as danced. And it was beautiful. But what I know is that I can't do that. You would not want to see me try that. Amen. (laughs) Amen. I got family in the room, all right? And, and the reality is that Leanna came to me very appropriately, uh, freshman year, I think, and said, hey, Pastor, um, I, you know, is it okay if when the congregation is singing, if I find a, a place out of, non-conspicuous, out of place, and I praise God with my dance? Because that's the way my heart sings to God. And Leanna, you didn't know, I've never talked about this in public before. I did say yes to you, and you do that well, and, and I'm grateful for you. But it blows the worship team away. They get, if you ever notice the worship team missing some words, it's because they're enthralled with your movement. And the rest, some of you can't see her, but these guys can see what she's doing. And, it just is like, and, and here's the point. The, the point is Martha was now discovering that her priority was to be who she was created to be. And as she's doing that, she's doing that, now suddenly there's no more disharmony. I mean, she looks out of the kitchen and and, and it's not in the text, but I think it's implied in the text, at least it is for me. I see Martha in the kitchen looking out at Lazarus at the table, reclining at table with Jesus and Mary there behind them and there's this big smile on her face. Because not not just because her brother was dead and now he's alive. No, 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 because now they're working out of what they are each created to do see devotion to Jesus will help you discover what it means knowing the grand narrative connecting the dots making sure you understand who Lazarus is who who Mary is who who Martha is and it's in this story that, that that now we begin to see the culmination of those things and then let's not forget Lazarus I mean this is a guy who was dead and now he's alive I don't know if you've ever met anybody who had that experience. I mean, there are lots of books about I saw a light and I was drawn to the light. But can I tell you something? There are also people, people who die on the table and are, res- are resuscitated and brought back to life who don't see good lights. And a friend, Dr. Rollins, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, when I pastored there, he's written a book about his experience with cardiac patients, the cardiac surgeon. And what's, what, what began the process for him was he had just done surgery on a man who coated on the table after the surgery, and they, they re- resuscitated the man. They, they brought him back to life. And the man, as he was regaining consciousness, began to weep and cry out, help me, help me. And Dr. Rollins was there with him. He was a compassionate Christian physician, and, and he looked at him and said, hey, hey what, uh, what's going on? He said, I, I don't want to go back to that place I just was. Can you tell me how to get away from that place? And he began to describe this pain and this, and this darkness. And, and he said, I just don't want to. I don't want, and, and, and Dr. Rollins looked at him and said, Do you know who Jesus is? No, I don't. I, I went to church, but I don't know Jesus. Can he help me not go that, back to that place? And Dr. Rollins said, Yes, he can. And he wrote a book because he wanted everybody to know that not everybody goes to heaven when they die. Only those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and been redeemed and, and made whole again, who who found out what it means to live. Can you imagine being Lazarus trying to tell that story? <laughs> well, I was sick and I began to kind of lose consciousness and then I'm dead and and then and then I'm I'm, I'm in heaven. Because see, it was harder for Lazarus. Lazarus didn't, uh, from what we understand, he, he was already connected to Jesus. He was his friend. He understood there was redemption. My guess is Lazarus actually probably, probably was in heaven. And what I think is, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he walked out of the tomb, he wasn't running away from something bad. He was leaving something better than he'd ever seen before. And now suddenly, now suddenly Lazarus is at the table. Martha's looking out from the kitchen. She sees Lazarus sitting next to Jesus and all the people asking him, hey, man, what was that like? Where was that? What was it like? And Lazarus going, I can't, I, can't, I can't explain it to you. It's beyond this. But it's new life. Because you see, while Martha learned new priorities, Lazarus got a new life. A new life that will last forever a new life that was meaningful because because Jesus remember what he said to those disciples on the other side of the Jordan River and they said that if he's asleep he'll get well well listen i'm he's dead and for your sake i'm glad so you can see the power of God at work my friends if you want to Have a prepared heart. If you want to live your life leaning into Scripture, learning the grand narrative, not just intellectually, but experiencing the connection that God makes in people, then you've got to understand Lazarus is sitting at the head table because he's got the story that everybody else needs, not just because he's a local celebrity. And he has discovered new life in Christ. But the biggest thing of this is Mary. Mary, who is so prone to do what the culture says not to do. Mary, who would go in and sit in the room with the men when none of the other women would do it. Mary, who would say to Jesus, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't be dead now. And and, and here's Mary, and she's standing behind Lazarus. And she can see into the kitchen. And as she can see into the kitchen, and she sees Martha happy and balanced and doing everything she needs to do and and not coming out and chastising her and telling her. And she looks and she sees Lazarus alive and talking to Jesus and talking to the people around the table. And now suddenly her emotions of gratitude just become overwhelming. And for those of you who don't know, when it says that they rec- Lazarus reclined at table with Jesus, what it means is when they sat at a table for a dinner, they didn't sit in chairs like we do. They kind of sat on, on their hip and, and their legs stretched out away from the table for hygiene purposes. But as, as Jesus is there reclining at the table with the others, here's Mary with these emotions and these tears begin to flow. And then Mary does this amazing thing. Mary reaches back because she's brought something with her. She's brought this this jar of perfume, this, this pure nard, John tells us. Very expensive. In fact, we'll find out a little later in the passage here today that it was worth a year's salary. Now, I don't know what your, your salary is, I know what mine is, and what I know is, I have never bought anybody perfume that was worth a whole year's salary. I love my wife, but not that much. No, 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 I'm just teasing. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's expensive stuff, right? And, 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 and we, we find that out, and, and we understand that now she's making this amazing sacrifice, because most likely, This wasn't just hers. It was hers and Martha and Lazarus. Most likely, this was like their family inheritance. It was that valuable to them. In comparable pricing today, I did a little research to find out that the most expensive bottle of perfume in the world has sold for $200,000. So I want you to think about your reaction. If you're watching your sister take your inheritance and begin to pour it on a teacher's feet. Because that's what Martha saw. And Martha didn't say a word. And that's what Lazarus saw. And Lazarus didn't say a word. And then Mary being Mary doesn't just wet his feet with her tears, doesn't just pour out the perfume on his feet, but now she does the most unthinkable thing that a woman could do in front of men. She lets her hair down, which in first century culture was a very sensuous thing to do. And, and, and then she takes her hair and she begins to wipe his feet, to 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 with her tears wet his feet, anoint them, and then wipe with her hair. This very intimate act. And and it's in that moment that she models for us. That when you discover Jesus, devotion to Jesus will help you discover how it means to live your life in sacrificial servanthood. Sacrificial servanthood where the value of life is not in the things you have, but in the heart that's been changed. The value of life is in the relationships that have been made healthy and whole. Because that's the thing that blows me away when I read John chapter 12, verse 1 and following. Is that these sisters who used to bicker are not bickering anymore. This brother who died is not dead anymore. That in the presence of Jesus, all of those things fade away And, and we are free. We are free to pour out whatever we have on the feet of Jesus. Maybe it's pouring out your pain, maybe it's pouring out your possessions, maybe it's pouring out your dreams. Maybe it's pouring out your abuse. But there's so much symbolism in what Mary did. But there's also symbolism in the reaction of the people in the room. Because you see, not everybody had experienced the change that Martha and Mary and Lazarus had. And honestly, not even all the disciples who had been walking with Jesus for years. Because you see, when she did that, she she gave Jesus an opportunity to reveal wider priorities than anybody else had. Because when she started pouring that expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus, then one of the disciples, well, here, let me read it for you. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus. John is, he's the king of of like parenthetical statements, right? He's looking back now, not knowing what, he didn't know this then, but now he's looking back and he's saying, but Judas, one of the disciples, and by the way, don't forget, he's the one who was about to betray Jesus, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a year's worth of work? a denari was one day's work i know there are 365 days in the year but for the jewish folks in the first century they didn't count the sabbath days and the and the feast and feast days as a part of a year's work you didn't work on those days so 300 days worth of work and given to the poor he said this not because he cared for the poor but because he was a thief And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep the rest of that bottle for my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me with you. Jesus wasn't saying there was anything bad with charity. He wasn't saying there was anything bad with helping the poor. In fact, he's saying you're always going to have the poor with you. You're always going to have that opportunity to help. You're always going to have an opportunity to make a difference in somebody else's life with your time, your talents. But the fact is, to the people hearing him right then and to us, he's saying, look, I came for a purpose and you're, you 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 won't always have me with you. So what she's done is to actually prepare prepare my body for burial, for my death. <laughs> and the disciples, he told them multiple times, "I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to die." I mean, Thomas had said, "Let's go die with him," but they didn't really get it because they kept trying to stop him. And 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 what amazes me about This is a little, just a little fact culturally that that makes so much difference for me in this story. Because you see, culturally, people didn't bathe and have the hygiene factors that we have now. In fact, perfume was one of the ways that they covered up the body holder. And particularly with people in sandals and dusty roads and all of that. And if you do read, keep reading into John chapter 13, and you read, when Jesus washed the feet, do you ever see anywhere in there where one of them picked up the basin and the towel and washed Jesus' feet after he was finished with theirs? I've Never found that. But here's what happens. Jesus says, she's already prepared me by pouring this on my feet. Do you know that that, that kind of fragrance, the fragrance of that anointing, was still on Jesus' body when he was hanging on a cross? He had, most likely, it's possible, that he had not had a bath. You read the events of all of that. There's so much time, and the fragrance had stayed. So that here's what blows me away. When Jesus is on the cross, he's been beaten He's, he's got blood running down his body, crown of thorns in his head, nail prints in his hands and feet. He's dying because his lungs are filling up with fluid. It's a horrible, painful death. But you know what? Every time he heaved a breath in, he could still smell the fragrance of the servanthood and the sacrifice and the devotion of a young lady named Mary. Mary with a sister named Martha and a brother named Lazarus. And in that act of devotion, she was able to help Jesus as he was actually going through the death that he would die for the entire world, as he was actually living out what he had said to Judas Iscariot. Hey, listen, I'm not going to be here always. The poor you'll have with you. But I'm here for a wider purpose, a wider priority than just helping the poor. I'm here to save the world. And every time he breathed. Now, I used to look at that and think, hmm, that's a nice story. And then about 10 years ago, a little over actually, I was preaching this passage in this room to a group of people like you. Maybe some of you were here. And I, I, I had gone out and in order to illustrate what she was doing, I, I, I got this, this vase. I will confess, I got it from one of the bedrooms in our home and didn't ask my wife. And then I, I had brought, I had brought um, some ointment actually it was detergent because what I wanted to do and what I did was I took the 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 jar and I poured it out and I'm illustrating Mary's act right and that went well I mean I'm still the pastor right and 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 so things were okay and then and my wife is still with me then that's good And and, and then I got busy. I don't know what was going on, but I just, after the services, I took this back and set it in my office. Forgot all about it for about four or five days. But I walked in a day or two later, and the smell of this detergent was filling my office. (laughs) I'm like, whoa, that's kind of nice. It was good-smelling detergent. And so I sat it over on a shelf. And you need to know, it's not quite as profuse as it was those days. Over time, it's kinda condensed. In fact, to be real honest with you, that's the part my wife didn't like because when I didn't clean it out, the stuff dried in the bottom. (laughs) She can't use it anymore, so now it's a permanent setting in my office, right? But when I was preparing for today, I, I realized If I put my face in this jar, over a decade later, the fragrance is still here. Why would I tell you that? Because you see, she, she poured that perfume on the feet of Jesus' earthly body. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, you and I have been called to be the body of Christ and we are to be the fragrance we are to have the anointing of gratitude we are to be people who actually bring beauty and life and love and grace and mercy and new priorities and new life to the world and so i brought this in and by the way i'm going to set it up here after the service and if you want to come smell it, just to double check that the pastor's telling you the truth, you can do that. It's all right. But before that, today is the first Sunday in November. And every month, once a month, we, we come to the Lord's table, just as the disciples did a little over a week later. And um, we take the bread and the cup and we remember who Jesus is and what he did for us. But today, I wanted to add something. You, you see, uh, in these altar rails, there are little flasks, little vials flask, little of oil, anointing oil. Because if we are to be the body of Christ, if we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus now, I just, I just thought it might be good for us to carry with us a reminder of the fragrance of an offering of a a devotion to Jesus that we get when we lean into the story of Scripture and then lean into the world around us and let them know just how much they're loved. So in just a moment, as Sarah sings, if you're on campus, I'm going to invite you to stand and come to the front where we will have bread and cup And I invite you to take a piece of the bread, a symbol of the body of Christ, and to take a cup, the contents of which are a symbol of the blood of Jesus on the cross shed for us. And if you want to kneel at these altars and pray, then you feel free to do that. But even if you don't want to kneel and pray, what I'm going to invite you to do is, after you take the bread and cup, and as you get ready to return to your seat, And you can take the elements at any time that you want to. Then, before you go back to your seat, we've got enough of these for every one of you to have one. And they're in these four altars at the front. And my my encouragement to you is to pick one up, put it in your pocket or your purse, and let it be a reminder whenever you see it, that you have been called to a devotion to Jesus Christ that will help you discover a life beyond anything anyone else can give you. If you're with us online, they're already giving you instructions to prepare to take bread and cup If you're on campus and you don't quite feel comfortable standing in a line with other people, I I realize it's fall in Indiana and, and colds and flus and COVID are going around for some. If you're not comfortable with that, then I'm gonna tell you that right in front of you, in the chair right in front of you, there's bread and cup available for you. But if you feel comfortable coming forward, we invite you to do that. Would you stand with us? And let's worship at the Lord's table together.